Right? Is that the kind of environment that you want to be building? And people can have different opinions, right? But right. it is it, you have to recognize that it is a a choice about what your environment will look like when you talk about something as mundane as how many parking spaces you will require. Mm-hmm. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet at WFPR.FM and in the local Franklin Mass radio dial, FM dial at WFPR.FM, excuse me, 102.9 on the dial. WFPR.FM is on the URL side. I get tongue-tied sometimes, but you know, that's we're here for another session, Making Sense of Climate with our guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, how are you doing today? I'm just doing dandy, Steve. Happy to be here. And as always, uh, happy to talk about climate stuff. It must be my monomania, I think, is, uh, <laughs> the, is the technical term. <laughs> <laughs> Your monomania. But I appreciate you taking the time to help me make sense of it, because every time I turn around, there's something else coming up. And it's like, well, we'll have to talk about it. <laughs> we'll have to talk about it. We'll have to talk about it. Not that all we do is talk. There are other things we can do, but. We, we start at least figuring out what's going on. And it was interesting on a related note, we'd mentioned microgrids, and we'll come back to that in a little bit more detail. But Merriam-Webster added microgrid to the dictionary officially. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's and, and, and I think that the just if people don't have their Merriam-Webster handy, and can't quite pop that that book open and see a microgrid is this kind of self-contained electrical unit. So you have it, that is detachable from the grid. That is to say, you've got some wind turbines, you get some battery, or you get some solar power if you're a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. And if the power goes down outside, you still at least have the option to, you know, decouple from the grid and keep your power running. And of course, you've planned it all out and thought about it. But I mean, it, it's a a technology that's coming. I looked at the Merriam-Webster. The other new word they had was greenwashing. Yeah. Right? They had a bunch of uh, technical terms in there. Greenwashing, of course, as it implies, is um, corporations painting themselves green, even though they're not. I won't get on that rant. but um, We might touch upon that in a little bit as we're going anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but such yeah. as it is, yes. Yes. And then since it's everywhere, I happen to do some travel, visit some family. And there's a lot of growth in that particular arena of South Carolina. Residential developments are just expanding. But the one thing that concerned me, one, there's not a whole lot of green, sustainable environment built into the house. Certainly in this particular community, we were most visiting relatives with uh, 55 plus. So it was all one floor. Nice layout, so clearly you don't have to do any stairs, et cetera. That's, nothing's wrong with that, but it's still fossil-based. Um, and the way the community and the multiple communities along the main road are, they're all car-based. There is no mass transit in there. So even as they age, at some point in time, if they can't drive, they're stuck. That's that's uh, as much as I like visiting. I'm not sure I would ever go down there. Not permanently anyway. So there are many things that change your perspective on the world. Right. But when you start thinking in terms of climate stuff and you start thinking about 
transportation and heating your home, just the fundamentals of life and how they're going to exist over into the future, right? All of a sudden you see, you have new eyes, right? You see mm. different things. And when you look at something like, you know, in a, in a place like North Carolina, a country road with developments stuck off in the, into the, you know, into the green fields, knocking down a bunch of trees to build places that you have to have a car to go to, et cetera, et cetera. You, you say, this is madness. And then all of a sudden you begin to imagine the, what is it? The uh, consensual trance that humanity is in that we keep walking along doing things the old way when we know there are, you know, it's hard. It's not good to continue down that path. Yeah. At what point do we stop <laughs> yeah, yeah, effectively yeah. digging the hole deeper for ourselves and start making it better? Um, one of the interesting aspects, too, was the land that they are that is being developed had been grown and had been forested specifically as paper, uh, as wood for pulp mills. Oh, really? Because of the paper mills. But clearly because of the Internet, the decline of paper base. The they're determining they don't need as much paper. So, oh, by the way, they could turn it into a development and make mucho bucks on it. Okay, that's the economic way of doing it. But that may be one of our avenues, which obviously uh, then brings into the political discourse as to at what point does it make common sense for the common good to start incenting that kind of economic mm -hmm. behavior? Right. 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 So. Right. Lots I don't know. To when you say there. when you say they they don't need as many trees to make paper, all I can think of is the 1975 Newsweek article I saw that talked about the paperless office that was going to mm -hmm. be there by 1978. <laughs> I don't yeah. think we've made it yet, right? Not quite. There's certainly a lot less paper around, but it's not gone completely. No. That's an intriguing question. Do you? I mean, this is not entirely not climate related, but do you? take notes on paper and then transfer them to the computer? Do you draft your first draft on paper and then type it over? Or have you converted to typing whatever it is, you know, right. your shopping list or your, uh, you know, your the great American novel? I mean, wh what do you prefer? Speaking it, of getting rid of paper? Yeah, it depends. Certainly if I'm home in the environment where I've got all my network and devices, I will tend to do uh the uh, the system if you will mm -hmm. um although the food shopping list is generally one done via paper uh because we're i'm usually sitting with my wife we're going through the ads which are still print generally and picking and choosing in the ads and then on their shopping list knowing from time and experience the order of the store oh yeah, yeah. I, I write it out in that order at some point in time, I know, and I've tested some of the online order capabilities, and I haven't found that sort order available, whether it's Stop and Shop, Big Y, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of their enhancements will finally get to that. But I think their focus has been, at least, and this is obviously going off a bit of our climate piece, but it's interesting <laughs> anyway. I think their focus has been more in terms of facilitating the order whether remote delivery, you know, even the Peapod delivery or drive up, pick up, et cetera, um, rather than kind of helping the shopping experience in terms of the order. Because, yeah, I won't right. go much further than that. It's an interesting topic. <laughs> Although I, I would say, and I think we uh, hopefully will come back, food is not disconnected from climate. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so the everything, everything, everything's uh, 
wound back in, but there you go. Yes. Yeah. Let's uh, yeah. put down Peapod for the moment. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And there are times, so on the airplane recently in travel, I was able to use my tablet, but there are times that the fold over ring binder, not ring binder, but the coil uh, notebook from our school days, I still have a version of it, more six by nine instead of the full 11 by mm -hmm. uh, 17 mm -hmm. sheets or whatever. Um, eight and a half by 11 sheets that I prefer to do some of my other writing. So whether it's at least doing an outline for a longer work or doing my smaller poetry in shirku form, those fit nicely. Although originally, one of the reasons I did shirku was because postcards were good for not postcards, but index cards were handy and available. A lot of us the, dating ourselves, obviously, but index cards were something you did to do research and go to the library with, et cetera. Index cards are very nice for that size. Yep, yep, so yep. it depends. I've done paper. If anything, I would have to say I'm probably trending away from paper more and more digital. So you were in South Carolina visiting relatives, were aghast at the nearsightedness, shall we say, or the lack of sight vision into what it meant to build all these buildings, right? Uh, out on a highway. That's a, yeah, I that's mean, a our climate distressing road, thing. Yeah. Our climate roadmap discussion says 2030, 2050, here in Mass, we've got significant things to do. And we're struggling with, while the legislation has been passed, thankfully, there are still a whole lot of actions to do. Uh, some of them are still housing. And I know we talked about kind of the uh, housing proposals, and there were still some, uh, I'm not sure that the final determination has been put out there yet, if I remember correctly. And again, there was some draft with some comments that were revising it. I'm not sure where that is offhand as we sit for this now, but to the extent that it has been a topic, when you go down there, it's staggering how many residential places are being built. And they're being built now, and they're being built that fast that only you you can get only reach it by a car there's right. no mobile there's no mass transit whatsoever right. um and yeah it's an interesting aside that they also get around within the community via golf carts <laughs> again battery operated in most cases but still it's just really yeah 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 well i tell you the uh i saw like i do not have a reference for it but i saw something like a some sort of opinion survey here in Massachusetts, probably put out by Commonwealth Magazine or something, saying that most people in Massachusetts do support the idea of having uh, development in, I think it was called infill, a development of housing near the train lines mm -hmm. in order to support improved transit. And I mean, that's just, that's just a straw in the wind, given that the MBTA is... Uh, is slower now that they took a month off to fix things, right? right. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, the vision is there, right? To have the the transit that works and the housing near the transit, and presumably the shopping. Of course, that's relevant to Franklin. Which is continuing discussions in our town about, you know, how is that going to be accomplished? Not easy, right? And yeah. uh, the yeah. only way to do it is to hear from everybody, and and as they say, a good process probably would give you to a good result. Yeah, and at least to dwell on that Franklin point for a little bit, uh, people are should be aware there's parking discussions, zoning discussions that are related. Some of the parking pieces are before the town council now. The zoning pieces 
those aspects are forthcoming. There's still work being done. So there's still opportunity to be aware, have your input, get involved, um, because those are going to be critical for us going forward. Well, it's an interesting point that, that, that some slides under the radar sometimes. You talk about parking as a um, requirement for buildings mm. and how much parking you're going to. I mean, that presupposes you've already built in a car-centric idea. Right, that everyone is going to go to that building by way of a car, right. and then you now you're dedicating. I mean, how many square feet is a car? Right, you know, twelve feet by eight feet. Right, you, you've got you've got hundreds of square feet mm -hmm. tied up for each car that you have to now dedicate pave. Right, is that the kind of environment that you want to be building? And people can have different opinions, right? But right. it is it, you have to recognize that it is a a choice about what your environment will look like when you talk about something as mundane as how many parking spaces you will require. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and parking spaces too, not to dwell on it, but to extend it a little bit, that is in a one-dimensional view. So it's X amount of square feet, call it even if it's 100 square feet, 10 by 10. But you're also precluding any air rights to it. So if that 10 by 10, 100 square feet was a building, you could go two, three, four, maybe five, depending upon what it was, and more efficiently use that space. And oh, by the way, give revenue to the local community because you don't have to, you know, put the pipelines any further along. They're already there, and now they're just going up internally. So, yeah, that needs to be factored as part of the discussion. So, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. It, it's a conversation for sure. So. Don't miss out on it. <laughs> it's near and dear to all of us. And the other topic, at least in terms of our current conversations, we've talked of the increase in electrical rates and how mass is beneficial or Franklin specifically is benefiting from the municipal aggregation. You found a resource that effectively says there are communities trying to get into municipal aggregation that have run into a little bit of a bureaucratic stonewall or delayed process? Yeah, there was an article in the Boston Globe. Uh, and it, it just, again, a, a, a plug. Of, the Boston Globe has many problems, but Sabrina Shankman is a reporter for the Globe that specializes in climate issues, and she does an excellent job, along with Miriam Wasser at WUR. Uh, but, yeah. but Shankman put up an article that, that pointed out the following thing, that there are many towns in Massachusetts, I think she said 60 different towns that have tried to have applied for permission to do what's called municipal aggregation. And of course, the municipal aggregation is something you and I have, we have talked mm -hmm. about on this show, because mm -hmm. here in Franklin, we already have it, we were lucky enough, foresighted enough to get in, get in ahead of the curve, right. But since the last two or three years, the process of the Department of Public Utilities, the DPU for approving the applications for community aggregation has slowed down dramatically to be like two years long, which is a yeah. missed opportunity. So it's just to back up. Community aggregation, if you're not familiar with it, even though here in Franklin we have it, right? The idea is that a, a town can aggregate all the people that live in the town and seek to buy the cheapest electricity for those people in that town. How does that work? I mean, why, why, why? It's because back in the 1990s, the state of Massachusetts, the legislature in its wisdom, divided 
the responsibilities for the electricity system into people that generate electricity on the one hand from the people that deliver the electricity. So your Eversource, Eversource bill or wherever you get National Grid or wherever you get your electricity from, they are the, the distribution companies that bring you electricity, but they don't make the electricity. Mm -hmm. Community aggregation allows you to go the town, say Franklin or a town, to go to the people who make the electricity, make a deal with them, and then the electricity comes through the wires. So it's kind of invisible to the average person, but you get a, um, you can buy cheaper electricity this way. The, from the climate perspective, the real, the wonderful part about it is that you can also require that electricity to be green. Yes. Right? So many towns are seeking to buy cheaper, greener electricity on their own, right, through community aggregation, and then have that cheaper, greener electricity pump through their standard utility distribution system. And that, the approval of that process by which the town wants to get permission to buy from, I think, I forget who, Franklin has Colonial Energy or something <clears throat> that, we, that yeah. aggregates uh, both the green credits and the power from out of state and brings us what's called 100% green electricity at a cheap rate, which is great, mm -hmm. right? Yep. But the what's happened is that the DPU has slowed down in approving these requests, which of course has hurt the towns because in the in the two years since they put the request in, Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. So now everything's more expensive. They can't get the deal they had before and they're missing all of the green benefits um, and so for me, it begs a question of what exactly why the DPU has slowed down in its approval. Um, of course, the DPU embarrassingly said, well, COVID, the pandemic uh, slowed everything down. Like, if that doesn't make you raise your eyebrows and say, Do you really want me to buy that? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there's no actual implication in the article that there's any kind of political agenda on the part of the DPU, because, of course, the less that you, the more people get away from the standard industry players to go buy clean energy from someone else, it hurts the big utility companies, right? And so uh, not going, I, I can't throw any particular accusations about why, any nefarious reason why the DPU was so slow. But it seems like all of a sudden they got a fire lit under them and they're trying to improve the process by which towns get approved to do this community aggregation. So yeah. this is all part of the, you know, all pertains to the Massachusetts roadmap because it all comes back to greening everything up, mm -hmm. right? And how do we, how do we get there? <clears throat> and so one more turn of the screw, right? Yeah, and I think one of the pieces that I caught from the article in the speed read that I did uh, was one community reference that they in the the elapsed time has been in excess of like nine hundred and nine hundred days, and seven hundred of those days they were waiting on the DPU to respond to what they had submitted. Right. So clearly the ball the ball was in their court, and for whatever reason they were less than responsive. Right. So. Yeah. And so I, I was looking in the comments of the article and somebody said that in New Hampshire, well, let me back up and say, in like 2015 or so, the turnaround time for these applications by the town to the DPU to get approved was essentially 60 days, two months, mm -hmm. right? right? Now it's up yeah. in 900, 700, 900 days. They set up in New Hampshire, if you don't, if you're not 
refused in the first 60 days, you have approval. Automatic. <laughs> so it defaults to approval after the a time a clock runs out, right? Which mm -hmm. is a much more stringent, interesting idea, interesting way to do it. But yeah. I, I think that the again, just generally speaking, it it suggests that as if you're worried about climate, one place to keep a steady eye is on the bureaucracy, the Department of Public Utility, Department of Energy Resources, all that kind of stuff to make sure that they are playing straight. And then while we've touted clearly wind power in particular in mass, uh, not just because that's how we're, our municipal ag actually is coming through as wind power, but with the wind, offshore wind development, you had an article referenced that uh, there should be something other than just, you know, bring from the wind turbine located offshore to the shore to create kind of uh, uh, an ocean-based network extension of the grid to better manage that electricity process, which obviously that's thinking out of the box in, 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 in a way for sure. It's, it's, it's a fascinating idea. And again, this is, I guess this is an article from Miriam Wasserman at WBUR, right? And so the, the context, it's, it's actually makes like great sense. Context is that Massachusetts is pushing to install more and more wind farms offshore right so you can imagine that in the not too distant future there will be three four five sets of 100 wind turbines somewhere off the coast of massachusetts right and of course every state on the eastern seaboard is trying to do the same thing so all uh -huh. dotted all along the eastern seaboard there will be these little little not little but i mean these wind yeah. farms right fields, fields Literal, right? water water fields ocean-based fields right. and 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 the way it stands now is that each one of those fields as you say each one of those sets of say 100 wind turbines they are expected to lay their own cable underwater bring it up to a beach somewhere and then get permission to cross the beach and hook into a the power system and distribute that power Right. So now you have, like, just imagine in 20 years, you're going to have to have 30 different sites along the eastern seaboard where the power comes in, crosses somebody's beach and goes into the uh, goes into the into the system. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is going to be damaging for a lot of stuff, you know, environmentally and to environmental justice communities, yada, yada, yada. It's going to be more expensive because everybody's got to build their own sort of redundant connections. It's a mess, right? So the idea that's proposed in this article is that instead of, well, I guess the other interesting point is that, for example, in Massachusetts, the easiest place to bring the wind turbine energy onshore is to route a cable to Cape Cod, okay? And the article makes sort of the physical, the, the biological analogy and says that right now, in 2022, the way the system's set up is that the big trunk carriers of electricity are inland and they're like the veins of your body mm -hmm. and that that slowly dissipates out and all the capillaries feeding the blood to your skin are all along cape cod right and so that if you want to bring if you want to bring blood into your body you don't tap into your fingertip and try and put blood into your capillaries right you go somewhere right. else yeah. the, the analogy is you don't want to bring all this power and try and jam it into this very fragile system at the seashore right so given that the idea is that it would be 
environmentally better, it would be faster and cheaper to essentially connect all these different, let's say just 20 or 30 wind farms, these wind areas along that are out 10 miles in the ocean, connect them by a big underwater cable that runs north-south along the eastern seaboard, connecting all those wind turbines together where they all put their power on that cable. And then you can have fewer onshore connections. Mm-hmm. And that's better all the way around. It's better for environmental justice community. It's better for the beaches. It's cheaper. It's more reliable because if one wind turbine's got a problem, the other wind turbines can kick in. If you have to give power north or south, all around better. And it's one of these things that the Inflation Reduction Act, I hope, will support, right? The big federal lots of $369 billion, but it's a good idea. And as the article says, it's kind of abstract in the moment, but it's, when you look at it, say, that makes so much more sense than having everybody build their own little connection onto the shore. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, I highly that- recommend. Yeah, and I think that it fosters the other concept that we've had. And clearly, as you and I are talking, clearly you're more of an expert than I am. I'm trying to make sense of what's going on. <laughs> it's in the conversation that we start realizing that, oh, that sounds good, but then how are we going to do it? And then you start figuring out, oh, as you start doing so, <laughs> there are complications and maybe there's a better way to just think it through, lay it out, figure out the pros and cons, and then go this way or that way, et cetera. And thereby, for those listeners who are listening, thank you, and we appreciate that. Continue the conversation, because there may be other good ways to do it, as, as well as if there's other bad ways to avoid, then let, let, let the appropriate folks know along the way. And we should have the humility to, to always think that we're not going to get everything perfect, right? That right. there will be problems that we will need to solve. And so there will be missteps. There will be funny things that happen, but the greater goal is worth it. And we just need to resolve the issues and say, yeah, okay, that was a mistake. We got to go a different way now and not, I mean, there's no, there's no universe in which we say, oh my God, there's too many cables coming in from the wind turbines. Let's go back to use coal more. <laughs> We're not going that way, right? So we have no. to find a way no. forward yeah. that is, realistic because when we start thinking about it clearly we want electricity yes and oh by the way more of it and oh by the way less expensive (laughs) but we also want to have it so that it's reliable and yeah reliable on many factors so the delivery of it uh that it doesn't harm other environmental create other environmental problems come along the shore disturbing the the sea life and potential food life as well so i mean i think the the, the thing makes the case that if the if the wind turbines are on federal land, the the, uh, the wind farms in the ocean are on federal waters, then the federal government can lay the cables on federal property, mm-hmm. and they can follow the the best sustainability guidelines without having lots and lots of court cases. So it's 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 better, and of course the federal government will then have to work with uh, fishermen, lobstermen the people mm. that protect the whales, think all that stuff through, sure. right? So that you're not damaging things, do it the best way. And it's a win-win for everybody. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because ultimately, as we've talked, and with ISO as part of that DPU collaboration, the grid needs to be reliable. 
and it needs to be a little bit more flexible than it currently is. So that's, I think, one of the other aspects we even talked with uh, our recent guest, Jeff Roy, was that some of the transmit lines are going to have to be kind of two-way, <laughs> where currently they're only one way. So there's going to be some changes, and yeah, let's figure it out and plan for it accordingly. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, the it, it, just one sideways discussion, new new thing that I we, we haven't I didn't mention before we mm -hmm. uh, we started, but the we're talking about the Department of Public Utilities, the DPU. There's another department called the Department of Energy Resources, DOER. They were the organization, the bureaucracy that was charged with creating a building code that would basically be a much greener building code. Correct. And long and short of it is the DOER has come out with a building code, and we've talked about this in the past, the building codes govern new buildings, the efficiency in the greenhouse gases from new buildings, blah, blah, blah. The building code that DOER put out still allows natural gas in even the most advanced and it's a stringent building code, mm -hmm. which to climate activists is a um, a bad thing. Right. But it turns out that the state legislature reserved to itself the responsibility to review that building code by the DOER. So the DOER is in the executive branch. The legislature ha is going to pass judgment on whether or not it likes that mm -hmm. building code. And that falls under the TUE committee. Uh, and there was an article that said, you know, they are trying, the TUE committee is trying to decide what to do about this building code, how to react to it. Right. And I guess I hope that legislative branch demands that the DOER does better than it's done with this exist, this proposed uh, building code. Again, right. it's dark and deep, but. Uh, right. The, no, and I think the concern we both share and having talked with Rep Roy and not speaking for him, um, but he's going to be able to, I hope, come together with that effectively kind of compromise at some point in time. And I think it goes back to even the topic at some point in time, you have to make that change. So is the change now or the change in two months? At some point in time, there needs to be a change so that whether it's new building the new building goes into the new code or even a retrofit goes into the new code because you know we've talked in our prior conversations when you retrofit a building that's generally good for 20 30 40 50 years and if you're doing something now which is 2022 and we're supposed to have something by 2050 I might as well change it now right so yeah, I think he's going to be cognizant of that, and hopefully he'll have enough votes to uh, make that decision. Right, right, right. So. I guess my point is it's something to keep your eye open on. And yes. so there's lots of these little little blips on the horizon you can keep your eye on to get a sense of how things are going. And you had a link on an article from, I think it was Mother Jones, about microgrids, which coincidentally we started with because that was a new word added to the dictionary. That's right. That's, um, right. that's right. And we're interested in that pilot that's happening in Eversource in, in Framingham, of all places. So, yeah, they, Mother Jones is saying, I guess, and we would kind of agree that microgrids are the future, right? Well, there's, it's an interesting, so yeah, it's interesting and just parsing the words a little bit. There is an electrical microgrid, right, which is, again, electrically 
isolated from the main grid or can be electrically isolated from the main grid. Mm -hmm. The exa famous example would be a hospital that can, if the power grid goes down, the hospital can isolate itself, throw a switch, and now run off the batteries and whatnot that it has on site. Generators, Okay, whatever. generators yep. and blah, blah, blah. A great example of micro grids, it would be um, Puerto Rico, right, where the hurricanes come through and knock down all the power lines that have to go over the mountain, right? And instead, what they need is sort of isolated, resilient grids, each one of which can stand on its own feet. So mm -hmm. when the whole island gets slammed, each micro grid can provide electricity. Each micro grid would have some generation and storage capacity within it like for a small village, uh, et cetera. So this is a great, and the argument is that this is the way to survive hurricanes down in Hurricane Ian down in Florida, right? If mm -hmm. there were more sure. standalone little, little patches that could survive on their own, the whole place would come back quicker. So that's an electrical microgrid. Fascinating counterpart to that in Framingham is called the geo micro district, right? So micro is a funny word falling off. So the geo micro district is not electrical. It is um, basically thermal hot water, geothermal water that would allow your heat pumps to be on a, all the, all the homes on that small grid in that neighborhood would share a common supply of geothermal water, which makes your heat pump work much better. And so that said, and I think I think the the geo micro grid in Framingham is a rich topic for conversation because that really sinks into what we need to do here in Massachusetts. Yeah, and I'm it's one that I'm definitely interested. In. I know in our home it was built in the late 1980s. We upgraded the furnace to a more efficient furnace but still oil-based in, I think it was 2008, 2007, eight, something like that period. Um, the next piece would be going to the heat pumps. And having visited Iceland and seen the geothermal pieces there and knowing this pilot's underway, I'm curious about that because that conceptually, even in the neighborhood I'm in, we could have, you know, the one well located in the neighbor's could collaborate so that instead of having one person you know digging the well and you could have others share in the cost and then obviously share in the benefits yeah. and to do that on scale this would be the future i think so. well and, and there's an article of uh, a link i can send which is from i think it's vox but basically making the case that for the average homeowner right would like to have a heat pump but doesn't really know that much they're not a contractor they're not an expert right they've heard right. about a heat pump mm -hmm. and of course when they go to their favorite contractor the contractor is not familiar with heat pumps either and from mm -hmm. the contractor's perspective the easiest thing is to say oh you know i wouldn't do that i would put in and so it's not nefarious at all but one of the things holding back the conversion of more homes to heat pumps is just the familiarity of the contractors with the technology. Mm -hmm. And this argument, this this article makes the case that that either through federal training or through the industry needs to 
make outreach to the contractors so that they are familiar with what the issues are of putting heat pumping. Cause it's not, I mean, you, you do need to know what you're doing, right? It's not, it's Agreed. not like a, like a, a simple swap, right? You got to think about it and that you got to make the contractor feel comfortable because the demand is there. I would like a heat pump. You would like a heat pump. And a lot of people like a heat pump. Uh, but I'm, you know, even I'm, quail i mean i had a guy come in and look at we have a gas heater and i said well you know could we replace this with uh he probably says oh you know it don't work very well in new england <laughs> which is no longer true right but i mean that was the that was the, the response because yeah. you know the old saying about it, if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail right, right? i mean yeah. if you're familiar with with forced hot water uh, that's that's what you do and yeah. so part of the way out in Part of, I think, probably in the bills that are in Massachusetts is more training so that contractors understand what it is they are, uh, um, what it is about heat pumps and why they should embrace them. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we can, and we'll also tease the listeners with, they should recall that we've had Representative Rich F. Roy, our local state rep, who coincidentally is also the chair of the TUE committee, uh, which fostered that uh, energy and climate bill. Um, he's been with us twice. He's going to come back. One of the pieces to your point, I think, in the climate bill that is approved was additional training, additional incentives, et cetera. But I think some of that funding's tied up in the development bill that is still pending within the legislature. Um, and even the reporters uh, following up with either Spilko, Marino, and others have said, well, there's still hope for that to happen in the session. So we can we can get Jeff's update the next time we talk sometime in November mm-hmm. and uh, find out what's what's latest. Because clearly, yes, there will be more demand for quality installations. Nobody ever wants to put in a poor installation and at a reasonable course. And all of that is going to have to require training and people and the right resources. And all of that is part of the plan. But yeah, that's part of the boatload of work that we've talked about that. Okay. Now, just because governor Baker has signed, it doesn't mean we're done. (laughs) There's a whole lot of work to be done now. The relevant work being the relevant word being work, which is paid work, right? These are jobs we're talking about, right? So it's a good thing. It's, a, it's all a good thing. So we've made a little bit more sense of climate. Was there any other topic that we hadn't uh, yet covered uh, that you want to cover in the time no, we I got think, here? I think, or... we, I think we have uh, we have gone sufficiently far afield. I hope we have not confused <laughs> people too much with all of the – I mean, it's it sounds disjointed, but these things all sort of hang together in terms of – how are we making progress on the roadmap, right? They're all, they're all there and they're all, to my mind, they're all connected by the idea that as active citizens, these are things that we should be tracking, just watching to see how things progress uh, with good faith, but, but, you know, determination that we're going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we all know the government sometimes works slowly. But generally, it works well when people participate in are active in the conversation. So if you've been listening along the way, we thank you for that. We'll certainly include lots of links to follow up on the individual articles that we were referencing. And in the prior episodes, we've got Rep. Roy's contact info. We've got a bunch of other contact info, including ours. So if you have additional questions or topics and say, hey, Steve, talk with Ted about XYZ. We'll explore it. It may be worthwhile. 
So thank you again, Ted, for this session. Again, we've learned something. And uh, hopefully the people have as well. And we'll catch you next time. And for the listeners, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.